If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Mark your spot in 1 Peter chapter 3, and then flip on over backward a few books to the book of Acts chapter 15. 1 Peter 3 and Acts chapter 15. While you're turning there this morning, I'm going to be pretty candid with you to tell you that this sermon has really frazzled me this week. I've been preaching for 17 years, and I cannot recall a sermon that has been more difficult for me to prepare than this one. This has happened every time I've sat down to write this week. I've been a wreck all week long. I've written five or six manuscripts and edited and re-edited and came in this morning and rewrote again and still doubt I'm going to say what I wrote down in the course of this week. And you may be thinking, well, why in the world would that be the case? And I thought you would think that, so I've asked myself that question. What is wrong with me? <laughs> why can't I put this sermon together and read and study and do like I do most weeks? Why have I been so torn up? And I'm still not completely certain, but I, I feel like ultimately it, it boils down to this. The stakes of the core value I've been preaching about, that of witnessing as a way of life, the stakes of that value and of the subject we're going to look at in today's sermon are incredibly high. They carry eternal significance for so many people. And because of that, some of the decisions that I, as, as your pastor, am faced with day in and day out, week in, week out, and month after month and year after year, but also the decisions that we as a church have to make as a result of the challenge that we will see from Scripture this morning is going to have a radical impact upon us personally, you and I as individuals, but especially upon us as a church corporately. I feel like we're at a crossroads in our church, a very pivotal crossroads. And the decisions that we make, the choices that set things in motion, mean we will never be the same, regardless of which path and which road we may choose. Our fourth core value is that we witness as a way of life. We've talked about four things that we as a church are seeking to build into every person who calls him or herself a member of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. That we worship God personally, that we walk with other believers, that we work for God's kingdom, and that we witness as a way of life. And this fourth value is without a doubt the mission and the purpose of every single person who calls him or herself a child of God. We are called to witness as a way of life to every person that we possibly can so that they may give their lives to Jesus Christ. That mission is clear, and the mission comes from God himself. And we're going to begin summarizing and saying it like this. We exist to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We exist to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We didn't create the church. Therefore, we don't have any say in the mission or the purpose or for what it was designed to do. God established, God created the church, so he's the one who tells us what the church is supposed to do, what it's supposed to be about. And our mission is clear, to lead people into a growing relationship 
with Jesus Christ. Now, we may craft statements and we may change the words of that mission, but the mission comes from God. But you see, the question that's facing us as individuals and as a church is how are we going to do that mission? How are we going to put that into practice? And make no mistake about it, that choice changes everything. And it impacts everything from our organization, our decision-making structures, to, to how we develop and spend our budget dollars, to the ministries that we offer, the ministries we don't offer, how we hire staff, what songs we sing, what style of music we're going to use to sing those songs, uh, the kind of small groups that we're going to use. It impacts everything. How are we going to do the mission that Jesus himself gave us? The mission is clear, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But the methodology isn't. And these things kind of sound cliches, and I don't mean to to be trite, but they kind of paint a word picture of the issue that's facing us and just the, the, the the simplified version of what we're looking at. Basically, to ask ourselves as a church, do we want to be a museum of saints a museum of saved people who are God's children? Are we to be a museum on display for people to see our spirituality? Or are we going to be a hospital for sinners? Are we going to be a full-service restaurant for us, for our wants, our taste, our likes, where we can say, man, we have got the best, and you fill in the blank. And we tell all of our Christian friends, man, you got to hear what's going on over here. you got to come and see this because we've got the best of this that's going on. Is it going to be for us and what we get to to have our needs met? Or are we going to be a homeless shelter? Are we going to be a soup kitchen for non-Christians, for the unchurched, for the lost people in the world today? Are we going to be a place for the homeless, for the drug addict, for the alcoholic, for the prostitute, for the homosexual, for the sexual offender? Are we going to be that kind of place that can receive and love and meet people where they are and show them the love of Jesus Christ that he might do his work in their lives? What kind of a place are we going to be? That's the question. And that's what I've been grappling with all week long. And my prayer is that today and in in the next couple of weeks and and days as we pray together that God is going to speak to us and God is going to clearly lay out for us who he has called us to be and that we will say, yes, Lord, we will do what you set before us. But you see, our answer to this question has two levels. The first is very personal. We have to make individual choices. You and I decide, are we going to personally share our faith with other people? Are they going to hear from our mouths how they can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord? Now, that's ultimately a decision between you and God, because I'm not with you all the time to hold you accountable. God is there. God sees. So it's really an issue of obedience or disobedience, your obedience or disobedience to God's very clear call for you to do personal evangelism. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I do want to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. If you have your own Bibles, I encourage you, if it's not already done, to mark and to highlight this verse so that you can see for yourself that personal evangelism is the responsibility of every believer. Because Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. If you've got your Bible and are underlining that or want to highlight some key words that jump out to me in that are your. He says, in your. You may want to circle that word. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Then he says, always be prepared. Circle those. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Another phrase, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The hope that you have. And then he says, but do this, two more words, with gentleness and respect. You see, this verse tells us a couple of things. First, you need to know Jesus to share Jesus. He says, set apart in your hearts Christ as Lord. I mean, you cannot give away what you do not possess, what you do not know. And so we need to know Christ and share him out of our relationship with him. Secondly, it tells us that people should see the difference in your life. He says, be able to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Well, why would they ask? Because they can see the difference. But here's the thing. Non-Christians won't ask about the difference Jesus has made in your life until they see the difference Jesus has made in your life. So can they see that difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life? Third, this passage clearly tells us that you need to be able to share the gospel with a non-Christian. You need to be able to tell someone who Jesus Christ is, what he did for them, and how they can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Every Christian should be able to do that without exception. And there's no excuse for us to not be able to do that. Basically, I say it like this. If someone walked up to you like the Philippian jailer did in Acts chapter 16 to Paul and Silas and said, what must I do to be saved? What would be be your answer? Here's my pastor's phone number. Call him is the wrong answer, all right? If someone walks up and asks you that you should be able to tell them the gospel message and how they can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and they can be saved. Personal evangelism is your responsibility and you have to accept that responsibility. Our task as a church, as we saw a few weeks ago in Ephesians 4, is to equip you uh, to do the work of the ministry. And part of that means equipping you to be able to share your faith. So if you say, I'm not real sure, I don't know that I'll be totally comfortable in sharing the gospel, then I want to encourage you to sign up the next time we offer the Way of the Master Evangelism class. It is our primary method. It's not the only method, but our primary method for equipping people to personally share their faith in Jesus Christ. It teaches you how to do that personally naturally. So just a normal part of conversation as a normal outflow of who you are, but also to do that boldly and effectively in sharing your faith. We offered the class this spring, and we have a video. I want you to see the last night there, they come in, there are classes, there are verses you memorize. You learn a lot about the process of evangelism, the gospel message, but you actually get to go out a couple of times throughout the semester and go and share your faith with people. And I want you to watch this video and see what happened on the last night of their class. Okay, so this is the way of the master class. This is actually our last night. Uh, during the class, we, we learn how to witness. Do you know what Christ did for you? Gave his life on the cross so that I could be able to have my sins forgiven, like the ones I just admitted to committing, because he gave his life so a man would be able to be forgiven and into heaven. So you, you have made a profession of faith and had to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Awesome. I've been saved and baptized, yes. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being absolutely certain, 
absolutely certain, and one being no way in the world, on a scale of one to ten, how sure are you that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? I think I'm, I think I'm at, I'm very close to ten. There's a way that you can know 100%. And if you put 100% trust and faith in the fact that he can do that and he is who he says he is, he will save you right here in this very spot tonight, and you can always know with 100% certainty that you would go to heaven if you would die. Is that something that you would like to do? Yes. All right. Dear Heavenly Father. Dear Heavenly Father. God, I know you died for my sins. God, I know you died for my sins. And sent your son to save me. And you sent your son to save me. I put my heart... My heart, in my faith, in my faith, in my trust, in my trust, in you, in you, to save me, save me from all my sins, from all my sins. Please cleanse me, please cleanse me, and make me yours, and make me yours. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. But how many of the Ten Commandments can you name? I went to Catholic school too. <laughs> you should know these, right? Have you ever told a lie? Yes, I've told a lie. All right, that's one of the Ten Commandments, oh, right? Do not lie. Wow. <laughs> All right, so me and you are self-admitted lying, thieving, adulterers. Yes. If we're to be judged solely on those things on the day of judgment, do you go to heaven or hell? I hope I'll go to heaven. If you're to be judged solely on those things, we'd have to go so to hell. Solely on those things, I think I go to. I think I would go to hell. No, I have common sense, so I understand everything here is for a reason. Stuff happens for a reason. I'm a firm believer in karma. I really believe in common. So in other words, there's nothing that you can do to get to heaven. In other words, your good works, your good to people, that will not get you to heaven. That's not my words. That's the words of Jesus. Okay. Have you ever heard that before? I just heard it just now. All right. And Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, and you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what it means. Not karma, not good works. None of that is going to get you to heaven. Does that concern you? I mean, it makes you just, it doesn't, I mean, it, it does concern me, but it makes it just known that well, I should just keep on doing these things just because they're good things to do. Right. But, but what you just said, I should start reevaluate some of my actions. Right. You know, you can be hit by a car right now. And if you have never not made a public profession in your heart of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you would spend an eternity in hell. That's real heavy stuff. That's it. There's only one way to heaven. I mean, do you feel comfortable to, to make a decision for the Lord tonight, or do you want to go home and think about it? I still need to think about it. Please pray for me, please. Can I pray with you right now? You can pray for me. All right, let's pray. But I'm, I'm happy Thank I met you, you tonight, man. It. God bless you. All right, you too. Thank you. Uh, would you like to say anything to the class for people who are scared to go out there and tell others about Jesus? If you deny him, he would deny you. Amen. Thanks, brother. You have a great night. Thank you. Okay, so this is the way. It's a great class. Uh, they were on the campus of Virginia State. That time they've been to laundromats, they've gone to the mall, door-to-door, uh, -door, do a lot of different things. But that's not the only type of evangelism, but that's just some way for you to kind of put that into practice. But really that begins to overflow into your relationship with your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members. It builds that confidence and that boldness. So I encourage you to sign up and be a part of that. If you're not confident and feel like you're where you need to be in being able to share Christ with other people. But the last thing in 1 Peter 3.15 that we see is that we need to have a concern. We need to have a sensitivity for those who do not know Christ. He says, do this in the last sentence with gentleness and respect. 
being kind, being considerate, thinking that if they don't trust Christ now, we want to be kind and gentle enough that in the future, whether we or somebody else may come along and share Christ, there's not such an aversion or such of a, a closed door to say, no, somebody in the past really beat me up over this. But we do this with gentleness and respect. So we're thinking about those who do not know Christ. And with that in mind, flip to first. P- I'm sorry, to the book of Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts chapter 15. And with this thought in mind of thinking about those who are not yet believers, I want us to think about reaching those persons as a church corporately. We just talked about personally, you individually sharing your faith. But what about us as a church corporately? How are we going to take, this is our largest gathering, this is our largest thing that we do every week to be able to connect and engage and and reach people in our community, uh, believers and unbelievers alike. So how can we best leverage the time that we have together each and every week to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. As we look at Acts chapter 15, and we walk through this passage, I think you're going to see it has got some amazing parallels to the church in 2010. Not just our church, but the church corporately, but especially the church in America. In Acts 15 verse 1, we see that this church faced a problem. It says in verse 1, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So these men who were Jews who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, meaning they were Christians, were putting unbiblical expectations on the Gentiles who were non-Jews and non-Christians that were coming to Jesus Christ. And they were telling them, you can't be saved by Jesus. You can't experience forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, and all that he promises unless you are circumcised according to the sign of the Old Testament. This was the Old Testament uh, outward sign that demonstrated that the man and the family that he represented were surrendered or committed to God and to following the, the laws of Moses as written in the Old Testament. So they were living under these laws. So basically, those in God's kingdom were saying to those outside the kingdom, you need Jesus and circumcision to be saved. So they were adding hoops to jump through or steps to be taken in addition to the gospel message, the same gospel that Jesus himself had preached. And church, I want you to know this is still taking place today. And in my opinion, it's actually gotten a lot worse. Because Christians, those already in God's kingdom, are projecting all kinds of hoops and expectations and unbiblical hurdles for people who are trying to find their way into God's kingdom and the local church. These things that they must do in order to be able to come to Christ. And I'll say at least the guys in Acts chapter 15 could make a biblical argument for their hoops. We've really strayed a long way from that in our day. And I want to issue a disclaimer here uh, before I share these illustrations, kind of get you to know what I'm talking about. Many of you already understand. These following things are simply illustrations compiled from years and years in ministry. Now, you may have heard someone in this church or in this community say these very things, or you may have said these things. I am not... I did not create it and put these things together with you in mind. I'm not singling any person out. These are common things that take place in churches uh, and in people's lives all across America today. So I'm not pointing any fingers, and I'm absolutely positively with every fiber of my being uh, not agreeing with them. I'm just using them to illustrate how believers today are doing the same thing that believers were doing in the first century in Acts 15. It was wrong then, and it's wrong today. Perhaps you have heard... 
People express either the words or the sentiments of things like this. Well, I cannot believe he would show his face here. Everybody knows he's the town drunk. Why would he even think about coming to church knowing how he lives his life? You know, if my children were as wild as their children, I wouldn't show my face in public, let alone in the church. Can you believe they sit there in that sanctuary every week with everybody in town knowing that they're homosexual? Why would they even come? And if I had a nickel for every version of this one that I heard, I would be a wealthy man. Well, I don't know why in the world they can't dress up and try to look nice when they come to church. Listen, I don't care if you wear a suit and tie, a dress, a nice outfit. You can wear a tuxedo to church every week for all I care as your attire. The problem with this mindset and this mentality is people projecting their preferences on other people, particularly in this area of clothing and attire. I say, when did business professional become the standard norm for church attire? They didn't have it in the first century. They didn't have it for the first 16 centuries that the church was in existence. And when suits and ties did come into existence, the common person couldn't afford one. So what establishes this as the norm. And some people try to spiritualize it and say, well, we should give God our best. And I agree we should give God our best. But who or what defines best? Is it the cost? I mean, you can go to a discount store and buy a shirt and tie for 25 bucks. You can go to a clothing store and I can buy a polo for $85. Well, I mean, I'm not gonna do that because I would never even think about buying an $85 polo shirt. But you get the point. So if that's the measure, which one's giving my God the best when I, giving God my best when I wear it to church? What's the determining factor? But here's the point. Believers today, just like in the first century, want and expect non-believers to act like us, to talk like us, to dress like us, to think like us and behave like us before they ever come to Jesus Christ. And it's not right. It's not biblical to expect those things. They don't know Jesus. He hasn't done his work of regeneration and sanctification and cleansing and purification in their lives. Now, don't hear me saying that that when people come to Jesus, nothing ever has to change because things will change. People will begin to talk differently. They'll think differently. They'll behave differently. They may dress differently. Things change when we come to Jesus. But remember that we come to Jesus first and then he begins that work of bringing about those changes in our lives. But we add all these things to people. We basically say, you can be saved if you believe in Jesus and, and you fill in the blank. And boy, we've got a lot of things that we put in those blanks, don't we, church? We fill it with a lot of things. So the first century church was facing this issue. The 21st century church is facing the same issue. So what should the church do today? Well, to answer that question, rather than me talk about it, let's just read and see what the Bible says about it. See what they did and see if there are some examples and things that we could follow. Verse 2 says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into such sharp dispute, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So the early church fought and argued about the issue. Oh! All right, well, we got that one covered, so let's see if they did anything else, all right, instead of just fighting and arguing about the issue. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. 
the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So they go to Jerusalem. This is the mother church. This is the first church that was established when the Holy Spirit came and fell at Pentecost. So the apostles are still there. They're leading, they're teaching, but they've also appointed elders. They brought men alongside that they're teaching, they're training and developing. And these men are overseeing the church in Jerusalem, but all the churches that are being planted that are starting in the region and in this area. So they come back to have them listen to arguments from both sides. And they're saying, do non-Christians have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Or to paraphrase for us today, are we going to make non-Christians or expect them to act, think, talk, and behave like us? Or are we going to meet them where they are, love them like Jesus, and let God do the work of changing them? That's the question. That's the issue the church was facing then. That's what we're facing today. Let's see what happened. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, the ones who were well-schooled in, in the Bible and customs and laws of that day. The Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to discuss or met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. This is Peter who denied Christ but was forgiven and is now following the Lord's will for his life. He's a leader in the early church. He said, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice. God decided. God made a choice. That the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are I can't add to Peter's words he said God made a choice I went and I I preached the gospel to Gentiles and they got saved God purified them he gave them the Holy Spirit and now we're trying to add all these hoops and these hurdles and these things to them we couldn't do these we couldn't live under the law for all these centuries we were powerless to do it our forefathers couldn't do it because they wound up all the time in oppression and in slavery to these other nations because they disobeyed nobody could do it so why are we trying to put it back on them because we've been set free from it said we are saved by the grace of God so let's not put this yoke on them And it says in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it is written. And these are from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and that all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that they have been known for ages. 
So God has said from ages past, I'm going to call Gentiles, non-Christians, unbelievers, my lost children to myself from every walk of life, from every situation and place that they're in. He says in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You need to highlight that sentence. Let me read it again. Therefore, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What does that say? Let's not make it difficult for people who are coming to Christ with our traditions, our customs, and our preference. As he goes on and says, instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Those are all things related to the worship of idols. Uh, they, they said we want people to come to Christ and we want them to avoid anything with idolatry because we don't want people thinking there's another way they can come to God. They need to come through Jesus Christ and they need to leave these idols behind so that people can know to come to Jesus Christ instead. And they should avoid sexual immorality, which was another part of the, of the pagan idol worship that was taking place. He says, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. He said, people know that we worship one God and one God alone, so we should avoid these things so that we can focus our worship on Jesus Christ. James put to bed the doctrinal and the theological issue that you need nothing but Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The message title this morning was Jesus plus nothing equals everything because we don't need any other thing other than the grace of Jesus Christ to be saved. And once that takes place in our life, he begins his work and he brings about the changes in our lives as to who we're going to be and how we are going to love and serve him. Church, God made a choice and we need to make some too. Are we going to be a church that's intentional about reaching non-Christians, about reaching people who are far from Christ? Or are we going to be a church that gives priority to making sure those who are already here are content and happy and satisfied? And let me make an important distinction. This isn't a choice between evangelism and discipleship. Some people say, well, shouldn't we be taking care of those who are here? And, and what, what about reaching people? There's no choice in that matter because Jesus commands us to do both, to do both evangelism and discipleship. But here's what we see in Scripture. Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, true disciples of Jesus Christ, do evangelism. They share their faith. We call ourselves disciples. Then what it means to be a disciple is that we witness and we share our faith with those who need to hear. And this isn't an issue of, of us and them, you know, those who are not here, those who are here. You know, we, we need to be fed and we need to grow. We need to be nurtured and all that. It's not a choice between that either. Because the more we grow... In Christ, the more spiritually mature a person comes, the greater their love for the unchurched and the non-Christian person should be. The more we grow in Christ, the more we should want to reach those who are far from Christ. The more we grow in Christ, the more we should be willing to sacrifice so that others can experience what we've come to know through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you think that's not the case, let me give you three quick examples. Who's the most spiritual person that you know? Let, let me rephrase that. You may be thinking of a person like now in your mind. Who is the most spiritual, godly person, most like God, who's ever lived and walked the face of the earth? That would be Jesus Christ, okay? He is the most godly, most spiritual person that we would ever know. What did Jesus say he came to do? 
He said he came to seek and to save what was lost. People who were far from God. That's what Jesus, the most godly spiritual person who ever lived, said he came to do. Seek and to save what was lost from God. So as we grow to be more like Jesus, we should grow more to want to reach those people who are far from God. Think about another example, that, that of Peter. I just read about Peter uh, addressing the message and he spoke about this situation. Peter had a vision, he's on a rooftop. This big sheet came down with food and it says, Peter, get up and eat something. He goes, I'm hungry, but that's unclean food. That wouldn't be good for me as a Jewish person to eat that because I've been forbidden to eat that. And it said, what God, God has made uh, is okay. Don't call anything unclean that God has made. And he had this vision a couple of times. He's awakened by a knock at the door where there's this guy saying, my, my boss, his name is Cornelius and he's a God-fearer and this angel told him to send me to come to this house and knock on the door and that you're going to go with me back to his house. Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with them. Yet Peter, the people are like, ah, Peter's not going to do Peter says, oh yeah, I, I need to go with this guy because the angel told him to go. So Peter goes back to Cornelius' house, shares the gospel with him. And as Peter just relayed, the Holy Spirit came and those people were saved on that day. So Peter said, no, I don't want anything to do with these unclean things. And God said, no, Peter, you go because I want those people to myself. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in his life and ministry, what was, his, what was he known for in the early part of his life? Killing Christians, those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. Yet what happened to Paul? He met Jesus Christ. His life was radically changed and he became the author of over half of the New Testament. Uh, and he went to so far in preaching the message to, to Gentiles that he was beaten, he was stoned, he was flogged and left for dead over and over and over again for the cause of Christ so that those who didn't know Christ could hear the message. In Jesus' life and ministry, who flocked to him? Who was drawn to him? Prostitutes, sinners, lepers, tax collectors, pagans. What did the religious people, the devout, the spiritual in the eyes of the world and their peers around, what did those people think about Jesus? They hated him to the point that they had him killed because he was with those people who were far from Christ. This isn't an issue of spiritually mature or non-believers because spiritually mature people reach out to believers. If we're going to reach those who are far from Christ, there are changes to be made. Change is a part of life and change is a part of church. But what might be those results? What might happen if we step out and say, you know what, we are going to have and we're going to do things to reach those who are far from God. Well, look and see what happened in Acts 15, verse 31. They wrote this letter that they were speaking of and they sent it out with Paul and Barnabas to churches. Verse 31 says, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. They were strengthened by this message that it shouldn't be difficult for those who are coming to God. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. It says, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers so people were encouraged others were saved and the church grew that's what happened when the people said you know what we're going to care about those who are not yet here we're going to think about them and we're going to do things with them in mind to reach them with the gospel message of Jesus Christ we'll contrast that with a snapshot of what's taking place in many churches today did you know, and I looked and did research this weekend and saw in numerous places from uh, across denominational lines that on average, 3,500 to 4,000 churches a year 
close their door. That's over 10 a day. There are 10 churches just like this who are meeting today. Today will be the last time they will meet. They will leave. They will turn the lights off. They will close the door. And tomorrow there will be a realty sign in their front yard. Ceasing to exist as a church. And there are lots of factors as to why that takes place. And I can't even know the reason for all of them. But I will tell you that in our convention alone as Southern Baptists, four out of every five churches, four out of every five are plateaued or declining in attendance and giving and baptisms and new members and transfers of letters and all those things. Four out of five are plateaued or declining. And tens of thousands of churches in our convention will baptize not a single person this year. We have like 45,000 churches. Around 40% of those will baptize not a single person this year. They're not even reaching their children. And so when you've got people who are aging and dying, because that's what happens in life, and you're not reaching new people on the front end over time, you decline. And there aren't enough people there to continue the work that needs to be taking place. So church, we stand at a crossroads, and the question for us is, what are we going to do? Who are we going to be? And what are we willing to give up and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel message of Jesus Christ? He gave his life. What are we willing to give up so that others may come to know him? The question is, are we as a church willing to do whatever it takes to reach non-Christians? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to reach those who do not yet know Christ? I can't answer that for all of us. That's why I'm going to ask you to pray.